We've really just started our study through this amazing letter to the Hebrew Christians of the first century and what God has to speak to us through it. So let's take a look at it now, beginning at verse 5. We're going to continue on with a theme that we saw earlier last week about the superiority of Jesus. Last time, the writer of the Hebrews just barely introduced this theme. Now he's going to really dig into it. Starting just at verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again... I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. You see, the author of this great letter to the Hebrews, his real passion is to demonstrate that Jesus is greater. Now, in his most pointed focus in chapter one, he's trying to show that Jesus is greater than any kind of angelic being. And the first reason he brings out here, quoting passages from the Old Testament here specifically, he quotes Psalm chapter two, verse seven, where here he's quoting the idea that Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the son of God. Now, this might not be a big deal in your mind, as I said last week. I'm expecting that you probably didn't get out of the car and walk into this building this morning thinking, I hope the pastor proves to me that Jesus is greater than the angels. That's probably a settled issue in most of your minds. But actually, in these days of first century Judaism, it was actually a fairly big topic. And one of the reasons why is because in some way or another that we don't exactly understand, but we know it exists there in some way, The law of Moses came to this earth through the delivery system of angels. Again, I'm not going to get into it. That's one of the reasons why we allow you to text in questions. Then maybe we'll answer it later on in the video studio. But again, just leave it at this. That angels had a role in the delivery of the law of Moses. And because the ancient Jews and the modern Jews as well, they prized the law of Moses so much They tended to really exalt the idea that it came by angelic revelation. Angels, angels, angels. They weren't denying divine revelation, but they were really fixed on the fact that God used angels as intermediaries. Well, here, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to say, okay, great, wonderful that God used angels to do that. But don't you ever forget that far greater than any angel is Jesus Christ himself. Because the angels were never given this amazing title, the Son of God. Now, again, we're going to talk a lot about angels and angelic beings through this message. But I do just want you to consider this, this basic principle. If you accept in your mind that angels are a lesser thing than Jesus Christ, the son of God, and that Jesus is greater and angels are lesser. Isn't it fascinating that sometimes a lesser thing can become bigger in our mind than Jesus himself? Isn't that strange? It is. I mean, there's a lot of things in your mind right now that you would probably say intellectually. Yes, I understand that that is lesser than Jesus. I understand that my career, that my goals, that my uh, aspirations, I understand that this in my life or that in my life or on and on. I mean, I could make a list, but you get the idea. You get the idea that there are many things in our life that we know in our minds are lesser than Jesus. Yet somehow we allow those things to eclipse the place of Jesus in our life. You know, the whole I thing is when there's a solar eclipse. I hope I have this right because I'm really bad at science. But isn't a solar eclipse when the moon goes in front of the sun? Please help me out. Is that a solar eclipse? That's not. Okay, good. That's a solar eclipse. Now, we all know 
that the moon is much smaller than the sun. That the moon is a lesser body. But isn't it funny that if it gets in just the wrong place, it'll block out the sun. And isn't that way in our life? That sometimes these lesser things eclipse the place of Jesus and they block him out. Well, for these first century Jews, in some way or another, the idea and the exaltation of angels was blocking out their appreciation of who Jesus was. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to sweep all of that away. And now in the rest of chapter one, again and again, by citing proofs from the Old Testament, he's going to show Jesus is greater, put angels in their proper place. Can I put it to you this way? Put the moon in its orbit and let the sun have its glorious strength. That's exactly what he's trying to do. And I would say the same thing to you and to myself about all these different areas in our life. Does career have an interest and importance in your life? Yes. Does entertainment and pleasure have an interest and importance in your life? Yes. And I could go down a list, family, goals, on and on. But you get the idea. All of those things have their rightful orbit. Let them have their rightful orbit but never to eclipse the sun. That's exactly what we're looking at with Jesus. There's one other thing that I want you to notice here. It says here in verse five, for to which of the angels did he say, did he say? Now, wait a minute. I thought that King David wrote Psalm two. Do you see what the writer of the Hebrews is doing? He's telling you and I something very important that I'm going to touch on again at the end of our message. He's telling us, That God spoke through King David. That when King David wrote this psalm, it was actually God speaking in him and through him. And this gets to a very important thing that I don't, I don't think I could talk about enough. How important it is for us to have this concept fairly in mind that this book gives to us the word of God. Now, look, I know that there's a lot of details about our whole understanding of inspiration and revelation. I could talk about the autographs. I could talk about manuscript transmission. I could talk about theories of inspiration on and on. And that's a fruitful thing. Again, if you want to text in those questions, that's fine with me. But let me just give it to you at the, at the point of it here. This book brings to us the word of God. And when I think about that, I think about how, how amazingly absurd that is to the modern mind. Do you you understand how crazy people think it is that here I am speaking to a book that's anywhere from, let's just say, 4,000 years old to 2,000 years old. And I'm speaking about to a bunch of people who you seem to be listening. You seem to be attentive. If you're not, you're faking it really good. (laughs) Here you are. You're listening. And people would look at this from the outside. How crazy is this? How that? But I'll tell you why. It's because these are not the words of any man, though God used men to write the words of the Bible. He worked in them and through them and that this brings to us the word of God. Now, whether or not you believe that, okay, great. That's a debatable thing. And I'd love to discuss that with you. What I want to establish without any controversy, the writer to the Hebrews believed it. He believed with all of his heart that when David wrote, God spoke in Psalm two. So God spoke. And what did God say? Look at it there and right there in verse five. You are my son. It's very simple. 
Why is Jesus higher than the angels? Because God never called any of the angels his son. Not in this unique way. Now, it is sort of interesting that it is used in a very generic sense. Angelic beings are called sons of God in a generic sense. But in an individual sense where God looks at a being and says, you are my son. God never said that to any angel. But he says it to the Messiah. He says it to Jesus himself. That's one aspect. And by the way, the idea is repeated again in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Excuse me, second, yeah, second Samuel chapter seven, where it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So he quotes the same idea, the sonship of Jesus, once from Psalms, once from second Samuel. As far as the writer of the Hebrews is concerned, it's proven because it's demonstrated from the scriptures. But he's not done giving scriptural proofs. Those two quotes from Psalm 2 and from 2 Samuel 7, those are just two of seven quotations that he's going to give in uh, this first chapter. Let's look at the next two in verses 6 and 7. He writes this. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers flames of fire. Now, I want you to notice things. First of all, he calls Jesus there in verse 6, not quoting an Old Testament passage, though he could at least conceptually. But verse 6, he calls Jesus the firstborn. I don't want anybody to be confused about this. It doesn't mean that Jesus was firstborn in the sense of first created. We know from other passages of scriptures, including this one right here that we're going to look at, Jesus is the creator. He is not created. Yet, nevertheless, the title firstborn is applied to him as it often is in the Bible as sort of a picture of being the one who is preeminent in those ancient societies. Continuing on to the present day, the firstborn son had a status of tremendous prominence, tremendous headship over the whole uh, uh, siblings. So Firstborn was a title of exaltation, and now he looks at Jesus and he says, you are the firstborn. Then he continues on, now quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. Again, that's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32. And it shows that Jesus again now is superior to the angels. Why? Because he is the object of angelic worship. Jesus is not part of the angels worshiping God the Father. No, 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 no. Jesus is one of those who receives angelic worship. You see, Jesus receives worship from the angels. By the way, weren't we just singing about that? And that beautiful time of worship that we had? We're quoting those lines from Revelation where it pictures this angelic worship around the throne of God where they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These are the words with which they worship Jesus. They worship God the Father. They worship the Holy Spirit day and night without end. Jesus is part of those who receive this unending worship, this worship of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God receives that from angels. Jesus receives it. It shows he's greater than they. Now, may I just give just a quick aside here? Quick, though important. If the angels are motivated to worship Jesus, if the angels have a passion to worship who he is, I say to you that you and I, as the redeemed of the Lord, we have an even greater reason to praise Jesus. If it is appropriate for the angels to worship him, 
It is even more appropriate for those for whom Jesus died. Because as wonderful and amazing as angels are, we never read anywhere that Jesus died for them. We never read anywhere that Jesus shed his own blood for them. We never read anything about the sacrificial love that Jesus extended to us by rescuing us from our sin and our shame by what he did on the cross. We never read about any of that in regard to angels, but we read about it in regard to us. Jesus Christ did more for his redeemed people than he ever did for angels. And that's why it's appropriate that they worship him with even a greater energy, a greater passion, a greater strength. And I say this as a little bit of encouragement. Because I know that for some of you, and I'm not thinking of specifics, but just in general, there are some among us worship. I don't know how to put it exactly. You're just not that into it. You just kind of think, you know, I'm not accustomed to going into a room and singing songs with people that I don't really know. Or I don't know all of them. You think, it's, I never do that anywhere else. You know, it's just, it's just kind of not my thing. Well, I, I can appreciate that. Maybe I can even empathize a little bit with you. But let me say, it may not be your thing, but it's God's thing. We, we worship him, not even necessarily because we like to. Although I hope that you like to. If you don't yet, I hope you'll be brought to that place where you really do like to. But the bottom line is we do it not because we like to, but because it pleases him. It honors him. He wants you to do it. And we have a great responsibility because of all that Jesus has done for us. But that's not it. Look at it all in uh, the next phrase, not just from Deuteronomy chapter 32, but now we quote Psalm 104 where he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. This demonstrates that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord over the angels. Did you notice those phrases there in Psalm 104.4? He says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. In other words, they work for him. The angels belong to Jesus. Jesus doesn't belong to the angels. And so you see, again, it shows his superiority. So now we've had four passages of scripture quoted to us, two from Psalms, one from Deuteronomy, one from 2 Samuel. Let's get into the next proof, starting here at verse 8, where he argues that Jesus is superior to the angels because God the Father himself calls him God. Notice this, starting now at verse 8. He says, but to the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. It's beautiful. It's as if the writer of the Hebrews says, yes, God talks and deals with the angels. But to the son, notice that phrase in verse eight. But to the son, he says, he speaks in a completely different way to the son than he ever would to the angels. And God, the father says this. Would you please look at these words in verse eight? To me, they're thrilling. He says this, your throne, oh God. I'm just in awe of this. I don't know how many of you have an interest in theological research or debate or contrary you should every one of you that i look at this morning you're a theologian you are 
You have ideas and concepts and thoughts and developments about God. Now, I'm not saying you're all good theologians, (laughs) but you're all theologians. Can I say this? Even an atheist is a theologian. He's just a bad theologian. But I'm looking out at a room full of theologians. And one of the things I want you to think about when you think about who Jesus is, and I want it to be primary in your mind, is that he is God. He's God. This should exalt the picture of Jesus in our minds. Sometimes it's easy to lose touch with that. And sometimes the way that the world wants to embrace Jesus, they want to embrace him as being anything but God. They they love the Jesus who spoke about peace and Jesus spoke about peace. They love the Jesus who spoke about justice and Jesus spoke about justice. They love the Jesus who spoke about sacrifice and he spoke about sacrifice. And I could go on and on. You get the idea. But don't ever forget, he's God. And his word is true, and we need to recognize him and submit to him and honor him as God. And it's the most mind-blowing thing in the world that the second person of the Trinity exalted forever in the ivory palaces of heaven at one time in human history added humanity to his deity and came down and walked among us. Doesn't that just blow your mind? You say, well, I don't know. He looked like a man. He wasn't a phantom. I didn't put my hand through him, and it disappeared. What was he then? I don't know, but he's God. And how you know he's God? I could go on and on about that. Can I just give you one pretty convincing evidence in my mind? Look at our verse again. Hebrews 1.8, quoting from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Here he looks at Jesus and he looks at God the Father in heaven and he quotes God the Father in heaven speaking to the Son. And what does he say? He says, your throne, O God. Well, if the first person of the Trinity calls the second person of the Trinity God, that's good enough for me. Doesn't that pretty much settle it? Okay, great. If the Father says he's God, then that finishes it. And then he goes on. Look at it. It's very powerful here in verse 9. He says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. By the way, this is just one of those mind-bending passages. Um, It's not my intention this morning to go on a detailed description of the Trinity. In my mind, the Trinity, this truth that there is one God in three persons. By the way, I want to emphasize that one God in three persons. We are not tri-theists worshiping three gods. We worship one God, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. But there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit connected with that one God. And I don't know exactly how those connections work. I can't explain it to you in detail, but I know that there's one God in three persons. And when you look at verse 9, just let your mind get stretched just a little bit here. Therefore, God, in other words, Jesus, the Son, you are God. Therefore, God, your God, speaking back about the Father, has anointed you. And anointing is something always richly associated with the Holy Spirit. Here you have another example of how the idea of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is woven throughout the fabric of the New Testament. You can hardly go 10 or 20 verses without seeing some reference to the Trinity in there somewhere. So, you refers to the Son, um, God uh, refers to the Father, and and, uh, anointed as reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. 
But now look at verse 10 where he quotes Psalm 102. Here's another quotation from the Old Testament. He says, you, Lord, in the beginning. Again, notice this. Now he's going to follow with a bunch of phrases quoting from Psalm 102 that describe how great the sun is. Notice here, first of all, verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning, you laid the foundation of the world. Not only is he God, but he's creator. You laid the foundation of the world. You built it all. You ever been blown away just at the brilliant design of this? Who laid that foundation? Jesus himself. You should worship him as God. Secondly, in verse 11, he says, they will perish, but you remain. This shows that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is self-existent. In other words, all of creation could pass away, but Jesus remains. He is unchanged. Next, notice in verse 12, it says, like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. In other words, Jesus is sovereign. He can fold the whole thing up at any time he chooses. He has this ownership, this authorship over all creation. And now look at the last phrase there in verse 12. It says, you are the same. And this shows that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is, can I use the theological word that I like? It's, he's immutable. I love that word. I don't know why I like that word so much. Immutable simply means unchanging. A mutation is a change, usually in a negative sense. Immutable means unchanging. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. He's unchanging. I remember not long ago, it was when our dear uh, sister, Fran Thayer, was in her last few days, her last few weeks, actually, in passing from this world to the next. And I don't know why, but at that moment, the the last few times I saw her at her bedside, I was so impressed with the fact of how changing we are. I, I mean, you see that, right, in a person's last days, when oftentimes there's a fairly rapid decline, isn't there, in the last few weeks? And, and your heart just is stirred with how changing we are. We change. And honestly, especially, you know, as we get older, it's not necessarily changing, changing from, you know, bad to better. <laughs> Oftentimes, the changes we're experiencing as we get older, it goes from, from well, you know. <laughs> and I tell you, when I saw Fran, I was so overwhelmingly comforted by this truth that Jesus is unchanging. Lord, I'm changing. And not always for the better by any means. I'm changing. I'm weak. I'm frail. But I'm so happy that I can hold fast to an unchanging Jesus. Someone who's immutable. Someone who never changes. Well, this is who our Savior is. And again, therefore, so high exalted above the angels. All right, let's take a look at our last two verses here, verses 13 and 14, where he's going to quote one more psalm here, Psalm 110, verse 1, where he says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Now notice this, now for the seventh time in this chapter, the writer of the Hebrews quotes the Hebrew scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus, the Messiah, is far superior to any angelic being. 
And he quotes Psalm 110 to show again that God the Father said things to Jesus the Messiah that he never said to the Son. Therefore, look at it there in verse 13 where he says, sit at my right hand. In other words, when Jesus is enthroned, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, it means that he is at peace, he is at rest, he rules, he reigns in heaven, and none of those angels are doing that. I'll talk about this later on in Hebrews because it's a great theme that's repeated. But let me just put it to succinctly. The angels never rest in heaven. The angels are busy all the time worshiping God and serving him. Jesus, his work is perfect and finished. Therefore, he sits. Therefore, he reigns. Therefore, he's sovereign. Those angels, they're working all the time. Not Jesus. He sits down at the right hand. of the, That's why he says there, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Those angels aren't permitted to relax before God. But Jesus is not a subject. He is a sovereign. The angels, by contrast, look at there in verse 14. The angels are ministering spirits. Now notice this. Angels are not governing spirits. They're not ruling spirits. They are ministering servants, spirits. In other words, they are servants. They're workers. And they keep working while the son takes a posture of rest because he is the son. Now, you know, it really blows my mind. And look at it there at the end of verse 14. He says, they are sent forth to minister For those who will inherit salvation. Okay, angels are working all the time. And they are sent forth to minister for those or on behalf of those who will inherit salvation. Has anybody got an idea who those people are? I hope it's you. I hope you're part of that number. I hope you're part of those who have put your trust in Jesus Christ. And because of that, you are accounted as part of his family. And angels are not only there to serve Jesus, but Jesus is so filled with love, so filled with this wonderful compassion and care for his people that you know what he says? He says, I'm going to share my servants with you. They work for me, but I'll loan them out to you all the time. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know how, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's not many people in this room. Angels have served you this morning and you had no idea about it. You just didn't know. He sent forth angels to serve, to minister on your behalf, you as someone who will inherit salvation. And why does Jesus do this? Because he loves to share his servants. All right. I look at my time. I look at my notes. And I feel like I want to wrap up now with four things to think about. Now, I don't want to get this is going to take a little time. So nobody get, you know, OK, great. He's two minutes from Noah. It's I still got a little more to go. So there's a proverb that says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And sometimes when people think that the preacher's almost done and he can. Well, so I'm just I'm preparing you for that. All right. OK, just four things. Number one. Though God used man to write the Bible, it is the word of God. And I understand. I understand how in the culture at large, that makes me a dinosaur to think that, to believe that. And I understand, too, that even in the church at large, even among those who at least call themselves Christians, among many of those, that makes me a weirdo. But I just invite, would you be a dinosaur and a weirdo right along with me? Would you believe it? 
Would you, t- would you say, yes, Lord, I believe this is your word. It's not just the words of David. It's not just the words of Isaiah. It's not just the words of Jeremiah. It's not just the words of Paul. This is your word to me. That's number one. Secondly, I think that angels need to be properly understood. You see, angels are spirit beings who may for a special purpose take on human appearance. We know that they're spirit beings because what he said in verse 14, that they are ministering spirits. Yet it does seem that definitely there are certain times and certain occasions on which angels take a human appearance. That's why later on in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 2, he says, entertain strangers because for by so doing, some have entertained angels unaware. Well, I can imagine that among us this morning, there's probably some pretty cool angel stories or what you think are angel stories. We don't really know sometimes for sure, do we? But yet sometimes at some places, God allows them or commissions them to take on human form. Normally, angels are invisible and they can only be seen by special revelation. When Balaam was determined to go serve Balak, the king of Moab, an angel was sent to block his way and Balaam couldn't see him, but the donkey could see him. And later on, in an occasion when Elisha, the servant of the Lord, was being sought by one of the kings of an opponent of Israel, they were surrounded by angelic armies that Elisha could see, but his servant couldn't see until God opened his eyes. Normally, angels are invisible. I don't want to freak anybody out, but I don't have any doubt whatsoever that angels are present right now at our gathering. Because the Bible seems to tell us that the angels take special interest when the people of God gather together. They want to know whether or not things are being done according to a biblical order in a way that honors and glorifies God. Again, I, I don't mean this make you feel weird or anything, but I, it's true. We are under angelic observation right here, right now. After all, angels were present at creation and they were created before um, humanity And angels seem to have been created all at the same time. Sometime before the creation of the world, they were all created. And it doesn't seem that angels reproduce themselves. So we can say that there is and that there has been a settled number of angels. We don't know how many they are, but the Bible uses big words to describe how many. The host of heaven, such as them being as many as the stars in the skies. So I don't know how many angels there are, but there's a lot and it seems to be a fixed number. It also seems that angels have, or at least had, a will and a moral character. Some angels are described as holy, and certain fallen angels are described as lying and sinning. We also know from the scriptures that there's different classes of angels. Some are called cherubim. Some are called seraphim. Some are called living creatures. One is called an archangel. Again, especially when it comes to fallen angels, there seem to be categories or ranks such as thrones and dominions and principalities and powers and authorities. We don't know exactly how all these ranks and organizations work. We just know that they're organized. It's not a haphazard mob. But what do angels do? Well, they do continually praise and glorify God, number one. Secondly, they have at least sometimes some role in bringing God's word to man. Thirdly, sometimes they are agents of God's judgment. Sometimes when God has judgment to exercise, he uses angels to do it. 
Fourth, uh, thirdly, they are special servants of God. In other words, they serve God and his people. And then finally, fifthly, they observe the conduct of the church. Now, the Bible does tell us that there is one prominent fallen angel, sometimes called Lucifer. We more commonly know him as Satan or the devil. There is a fallen angel. That seemingly, from what we know from the scriptures, especially from Revelation chapter 12, he led one third of the angels in opposition to God and they joined with him in his rebellion. So it would seem that these fallen angels are actually what we would know as demons or unclean spirits. And these are our adversaries in the spiritual world. Now I could go on and on about that, but let me just say this. If Jesus is exalted above the angels... Is he not also exalted above every fallen angel? I don't want a single person to walk out of this room fearing the demonic. Oh, I don't want you to rush towards it or play with it or toy with it. No, 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 no. But I want you to understand Jesus is greater than every angel, whether faithful or fallen. The devil's got nothing on Jesus. He is greater. He is exalted. So Jesus is greater. He's exalted. He's supreme overall. And with that confidence, we can rest in him. Amen? Amen. All right, Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. We thank you for the double inheritance that we have in you, Lord. That Jesus is heir of all things and we also inherit salvation. But God, we thank you. That as we are connected to Jesus, who is greater than all the angels, Lord, we have a peace. We have a security. We have a rooting and a confidence and a power in you. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I just pray. I pray now for any of those who have not yet become part of those who will inherit salvation. Lord, move upon their hearts and call them to make decision for you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for your presence here and that you are greater, not only than the angels, but everything else. We worship you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.